Beyond the Baseline is brought to you by FanDuel, the leader in one-week fantasy football with more winners and more payouts than any other site. Enter the promo code BEYOND at FanDuel.com for a bonus match of up to $200. We're also sponsored by the SeatGeek app, the easiest way to find a great deal, pay for your ticket, and get to your seat. Download the SeatGeek app, enter the code BEYOND, and get $20 off your first purchase. We're so desperate, we're so hungry for the next generation, especially on the men's side, of, of a great player, of somebody who wins a Grand Slam, that sometimes we anoint our young players a little bit too early. And I think with this group of boys coming up in particular, we have an opportunity to set the bar really high for them. And we don't do them a disservice by doing that because they all actually have the ability to go really far. But we have to make sure that the standard is Courier, Agassi, Sampras, and the standard is not top 50 in the world. It's not even top 20 in the world. Hey everyone, John Wertheim here. This week's Sports Illustrated Tennis Podcast. Our guest this week is the new head of USTA Player Development. Let's get right to it. Martin Blackman, how are you? Great, John. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for stopping by. Where are you? I am right now in Boca Raton. Uh, we're going to be based here until next July. And then early July of next year, we're going to be moving into our new facility in Lake Nona. All right. Well, we'll get to Lake Nona in a minute. But I, I'm, I just kind of want to start big picture. I mean, you've taken over. This was the position Pat McEnroe had of, of player development. And I, I guess kind of the big questions are, how do you define your job? I mean, what's what's sort of your mandate here? Well, I think I think our our mandate is to get American tennis back to where we think it can be. Obviously, you know, we dominated in the 80s and then so many things changed as it became a global game and an Olympic game and you know, we didn't have the functionality that other national federations had so seven years ago patrick started the process of building that functionality in terms of a men's coaching staff a women's coaching staff a coaching and education department a player services department and a player id and development department and building out the infrastructure that goes with the regional training center initiative and I think we're at a point now where the systems that we have in place are, are very good. And we have some good talent in the pipeline. And now that we, now we've got to manage performance for the players that we have in the pipeline and focus on getting maximum results out of those players. And I think, I think it's two parts. I think part one is <clears throat> flooding the top hundred with American men and women. But then once those men and women get into the top hundred on the WTA and the ATP sides is to go after what we call maximum results to, to get players into the top 50, the top 20 and the top 10 and customize our approach so that we're as big a piece of the pie as we need to be, or as small as we need to be. You've been in the, in the player development game in different capacities for a while. 
Um, you know, you were you were in College Park, Maryland at the successful facilities there, the Champion Center. You were with the USTA. Do you have sort of some unifying theories about talent in general? I mean, what wh- what do you see as the way both the harvest talent macro, like you were talking about, flooding the top hundred, and what are ways you see of that that good to great transition? I mean, what what are some of your ideas about culling talent in general? Well, I think I, I think you know I got I got great experience at College Park because we were able to be a part of a program that was able to take kids from the age of six or seven and develop them all the way through until the age of 16 or 17. And that, that's really unique. Um, the reason being is that we had a great subsidy from our founder, Ken Brody. And so we were able to do that. I think on a macro level, the challenge is, is that the game is very expensive. Uh, training is expensive. Private lessons are expensive. And we're competing with sports like basketball, football, baseball that are very institutionalized and have a very low barrier for entry. So we're competing for athletes with those sports beginning age six, seven, eight. So the the first challenge is making the game more accessible, uh, making the game less expensive and making the game more appealing to non-traditional tennis families. And I think our partnership with NJTL programs is working um, in that respect. I think the second piece of it, John, is when you're allocating resources to players, you have to be very careful that at a young age, you're cognizant of developmental factors. So we have to be looking for athletic ability. We have to be looking for competitive toughness. We have to be looking at size. We have to be looking at grit. It doesn't serve us well when we're looking at 12 and under players to be looking at ranking only because that's not a very good predictor of future success. Then when we get to the older ages, I think we have to have a systematic way of looking at performance markers. So what we did a few years ago is we had a pathway study done, which was a statistical analysis on the pathway of top 100, top 50, and top 20 players and looking at where they were at different times in their development. And we base our allocation of resources to older players on that pathway study. So I guess that's a long answer to your question, but I think you really have to bring three strategies to bear. You have to focus on really removing or lowering as many barriers as possible at the base with players between the ages of 8 and 12. You have to make sure that your development system, your camp selection system is based on developmental factors and that it incentivizes those developmental factors. And then finally, when when men and women are older, um, you've got to do it by the numbers. Keep, Keep going. Let's talk more about the numbers because I think tennis isn't unique here, but we all have seen prodigies and top-ranked kids, 12, 13, 14, not be able to advance beyond that. And we know that, you know, that there are some predictors in some indexes and some measurables that do, you know, that, that, that are effective in, in predicting. What have you seen as something you can look to? I mean, is it is, is it all sort of size? I mean, you, you obviously grid is something that's going to be tough to measure. 
genetics sure. is going to be different. Hand eye is. Gonna, I mean, what are some of the material predictors that you can look to that are helpful when assessing who's going to make it as a not who's going to make it as a thirteen year old, who's going to make it as a twenty three year old? Well, I think I think in the in the middle when we're looking at players between the age of let's say ten and sixteen, some commonalities that we see are that they're very strong fundamentally. Um, they don't have holes in their game. That may seem like kind of a soft factor, but when you look at parameters for strokes, for forehands, backhands, and serves, across the board, you're seeing players at the top of the game that don't have any holes in their game uh, from a technical perspective. Um, you're seeing an increase in size. I definitely think that intangibles can trump size, but if you're looking at the bell curve and what's in the middle, you're looking generally on the men's side at players that are six foot and above, and on the women's side, players that are five five and above. So I think we, we have to make sure that we we understand that. And then and then you're looking at the period of time that it takes players to make moves in the rankings. Um, I don't have the pathway study in front of me, but in general, you know, there's a time period from when a player turns pro to when that player cracks the top 100. And if it takes much longer than that, then their chances of becoming a top 50, top 20, top 10 player are reduced significantly. And I want to say on the men's side, but, you know, anybody who's listening, please don't quote me, but I want to say on the men's side, we're looking at approximately four years. And on the women's side, we're looking at approximately three years. When you've got that these players. That the, yeah, yeah. We'll take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. The tennis season is wrapping up, but NFL is barely at the quarter turn. You're a Bears fan. Life's okay. Niners fan, not so good. Cowboys fans, better. Regardless, now is the time that you can play fantasy football every week with FanDuel. Play and get up to $200 in bonus cash with our code BEYOND. you probably heard of FanDuel. Of course you have. It is everywhere. Here's how it works. It is the leader in one-week fantasy football. This week alone, they'll pay out $75 million plus. We all love fantasy football. We all like following players and not just teams. But FanDuel does away with the season-long team. You can draft anytime, drop in and out for weekly cash prizes. Entry fees start as low as a buck. Games are already live in the FanDuel lobby, so go there. Over a million players have already won money playing fantasy sports on FanDuel. Now it's your turn. Here's what you do. Go to FanDuel.com, click on the microphone in the upper right-hand corner, use the code BEYOND, and sign up now. Here's a special offer for new users. For every dollar you deposit, FanDuel will match it up to 200 bucks. That's a bonus of up to 200 bucks. The offer is good only to the first 50 people that use my code BEYOND today. Don't get left out. Use the code BEYOND at FANDUEL.com, F-A-N-D-U-E-L.com. Try it out today. And what's fantasy football without the inside edge? Sports Illustrated fantasy expert Michael Beller serves up the expert analysis and fantasy advice on not one but two weekly episodes. The SI Fantasy Football Podcast, Mondays and Thursdays on iTunes and at SI.com backslash podcasts. What do you what do you think about the social aspect of tennis? I mean, I, I had a former player say, you know, it, it's not this decline in, in U.S. tennis is not about globalization and it's not about 
our kids aren't tough enough. It's just kids in this country want to be on teams and they want a team atmosphere and they want a team dynamic and individual sports really suffer for that. Do you, do you buy that? And is there anything you can do with an individual sport like tennis to make it more social? So an eight year old, nine year old kid will find it more appealing. I think that has to become a really intentional part of our strategy at the bottom. You know, there's so many ways that tennis can be a team sport when you're eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, there's zonals, there's intersectionals, there's junior team tennis. Those parts of it, you know, really mitigate, you know, some of the solitude that goes along with tennis. Um, I think doubles is really important developmentally at a young age. Um, so, so, yeah, John, I, I do agree that we've got to be more intentional about, about building out the team aspect and the different types of events that we, that we present to the to the public um it's a big part of why kids play sports to be to be with their friends to be with their peers so i'm looking at the uh, we're we're recording this on a tuesday ironically enough i've got to go to voluntaries tonight um but i'm looking at the the website and they have the wuhan results and i see you know sharapova is having a wrist injury and may not play again sabine lasicki is shutting it down for the rest of the year on account of injury. Benchich retires from her match because of an injury. Azarenka retires from her match because of an injury. This is just, you know, literally reading website tennis headlines today. To what extent are you concerned about sort of the, the physical toll that tennis is taking? And also, is there anything you can do in terms of injury prevention, even looking at data in a 12, 13, 14-year-old to suss out durability? Because it seems to me just being able to play and last week in September, still having your body in shape is going to be as much a determinant of rankings as matches, wins, and loss. Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're, we're lucky because we're kind of coming into an era where sports science and tennis is, is catching up a little bit to the rest, to, to the rest of the world and, and other sports. I think there, there are a few factors. I think one is at the top of the game, the biggest change is that the best players in the world don't just depend on their coach uh, for their training, but they really depend on the performance team. So typically those top players, they have their coach. They maybe have a master coach who's a former player like a Becker and Edberg. They have their strength and conditioning person. They have their physio. And many times they even have a nutritionist on their staff. So everything they do is very specialized and they also use a lot of periodization principles to make sure that they're getting the, the right rest and that they're monitoring their match count. So I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to make sure that parents of our juniors have at least a basic understanding of the concept of rest and training blocks and when a player is more susceptible to injury based on their age and stage of growth, and also an understanding of how to kind of see overuse injuries before they become chronic. So, you know, like I said, we're, we're lucky because the research and the sports science is there. We need to make sure that we're disseminating it, and that's something that we try to do through our coaching education department and on monthly webinars that we have. You mentioned Lake Nona before, which um, 
obviously that decision to create this this mega hub outside Orlando that was made prior to your taking your position. But how do you feel about that philosophically? I mean, it seems like that that's been discussed and debated healthily, but there seems to be a bit of controversy about this sort of centralization model. Where do you come down on that? Well, I I, I think two things. I think one is it's an unbelievable opportunity to have a best practices laboratory um, to have a base for the country. I mean, this is not this is not a USTA facility. This is an American tennis facility. So I think it's really important to make that point uh, to make sure that the that the community at large understands that it's their facility. But having said that, at the end of the day, the development of our best young players is always going to happen in the field. So we're not going to reduce any of our efforts in the field through our regional training centers, through partnerships with programs and private coaches. We're we're not going to reduce those efforts at all. So I think that's the balance that we have to strike with Lake Nona. It definitely does not represent a centralized approach to what we're doing in player development, but it does represent an opportunity to bring our best older players together more often. Hey everyone, we've been advertising the SeatGeek app for a few weeks now. Our listeners say they love the service, and why not? It's the fastest, easiest way to get a great deal on sports and concert tickets. And as a special offer, when you use our code BEYOND, you'll get $20 off your first ticket purchase. The SeatGeek app takes less than a minute to download. It's free on the iPhone. It's very easy. It aggregates from the big ticket sites, like with Kayak and Travel. The same way you search for flights and hotels there, SeatGeek pulls in ticket options from hundreds of sellers to get you the best deal with one-stop shopping. No need to go anywhere else. SeatGeek also makes the ticket buying process seamless and safe. You're not going to get bogus tickets. You're not going to get tennis events from 1915 instead of 2015. There's no faster way to buy tickets. To redeem your promo code and save 20 bucks on tickets, here's how. Download the SeatGeek app. It's free. It's easy. Enter the promo code BEYOND. SeatGeek will then send you $20 once you've made your first SeatGeek app purchase. Want to go see live tennis or the NFL or the best concerts? Use the SeatGeek app. Enter our code BEYOND. Save 20 bucks. So I, I want to read you a, a a quote from Jose Higueras, who, you know, obviously long career with, with player development. And I, I feel like with the absence of Americans at the top, everyone has an opinion. It's open to interpretation. But here's something Jose said last year at, at Indian Wells. We're lacking competitiveness in our players. They've got good forehands and backhands and serves, but lack an understanding of how the game needs to be played. If our players were <laughs> European, things would be different. Being number 80 wouldn't be enough for them. I used to play for rent. Um, you know, for these guys, life is good. And I, I wonder, if, A, if you agree with that, and, and B, what can you do? And I, I think this is more cultural than constitutional. I, mean, I don't think Jose was saying these guys are inherently soft. I think he's saying something in the American co- culture has softened. And what can you do to offset that? I think that the, I think the biggest thing that we can do to offset that, I think, I agree with you, I think it's cultural. I think you get your benchmarks from past generations. And I think we, for, for whatever reason, we lost some connections along the way with past generations. And when you're work, when you're standing on a court with a Jim Courier or Chris Everett or an Ivan Lendl 
or an Andre Agassi, the standard is a little bit different. And I, I think the danger is that we're so we're so desperate, we're so hungry for the next generation, especially on the men's side, of of a great player, of somebody who wins a Grand Slam, that sometimes we anoint our young players a little bit too early. And I think with this with this group of boys coming up in particular, we have an opportunity to set the bar really high for them. And we don't do them a disservice by doing that because they all actually have the ability to go really far. But we have to make sure that the standard is Courier, Agassi, Sampras, um, and the standard is not top 50 in the world. It's not even top 20 in the world. Now, whether a player's best tennis gets them to that point um, is something you never know. But I think to Jose's point, there needs to be a toughness in the coaching culture that looks to those standard standards as the benchmark. So let, let me ask you, um, let me ask you on the women's side, because it seems like the situation's a little more stable there. Some of that obviously is you're not competing with some of the sports you mentioned before. You know, right. you're not competing with the NFL and the NBA and um, women's tennis financially still has a lot of appeal. The one criticism that seems almost universal about, you know, player development in general is that there are too few women and there are coaches from other cultures that don't necessarily pass sensitivity training when it comes to women. I mean, it seems like one constant that you hear again and again on the women's side, what's being done to address that? Well, I think two, I mean, I guess two things. One is I think it, I think, I don't think that criticism is completely based in reality. You've heard, you've heard um, that though, right? I mean, this, but I've heard it okay. for sure. Um, we have we have a fair amount of Latin coaches. Most of them are American citizens, and most of them have green cards. So I would just caution people in you know it, in the reality that obviously you know Americans come from from everywhere. But I think that the fact that we don't have enough female coaches is a definite challenge. Um, and it's something that we're actively working on, um, reaching out to former players, reaching out to women who are about to retire from the WTA tour, reaching out to female college coaches, and just trying to get more females in that track, in that national coach track, so that we have a bigger pool of female coaches to choose from. That, that, is, that is a real challenge for us, um, and that's something that we're going after. It's a high priority for me. So how are you – I mean, this is, this is sort of the, the trite question you always ask people in a new job, but I'm kind of interested, especially what we were talking about in terms of specific indexes and, and, and data. I mean, what's going to define success for you? I mean, how, how are you going to say this was, this was a job well done? Is it X players in the top 100? Is it – you know, is, is there a TV rating? Is there a participation component to this? I mean, how how are you ultimately going to determine whether or not um, you've been successful in this position? I I think that if we if we look at our if we look at a baseline that that's a snapshot of this summer, let's say we look at the talent that we have in the pipeline in terms of juniors, uh, we look at the players that we have in the top hundred. 
let's say that are under the age of 27. Um, we look at the health of our junior program and we look at the number of athletes that we're able to attract at the bottom of the base. I think if you take a snapshot and then we fast forward three years, I think, I think some of those indicators are going to be more players in the top 50, um, new players in the top 10, more players in the top 100, um, a, bigger, a bigger base of juniors coming up in the middle, and a much more accessible game at the bottom. I think that would be, those would be the indicators of success in three years. Three, three years is interesting. Is that, uh, is that the window you're conceptualizing? <laughs> no, that's not, that's, not, that's not my contract time or anything, but I think, that's a, I think that's a reasonable window of accountability for what we have in the pipeline and for what the lag is on some of these initiatives. So let, let me, I, I want to leave you with this and sort of give you the last word. I mean, obviously, talent development, player development is a big issue in American tennis. When Patrick resigned at the U.S. Open last year, obviously there was a lot of chatter. Where do we go from here? And it took a while. I mean, I, th- I think you were, was it April, I believe, you were, you, you were given this post. Especially given this position, I'm, I'm just curious, what, like, what, do, what do you want people to know? I think the most important, the most important thing that I would like people to know about me in this job is the fact that I just came out of the private sector about four months ago. I was running my own academy. Um, I was on the court for eight or nine hours a day. Um, I was spending my weekends at tournaments. I was spending my evenings talking to parents and that we have complete we, we we have a complete understanding of what private sector coaches and what small programs throughout the country are doing and the only way that we're going to meet the goals that we have for american tennis is with a comprehensive partnership with the private sector so i think it, you know i think that's really important for people to know that we don't think that we have all the answers. Uh, we don't think that our coaches know more than everybody else, but we really understand that we're going to get this done as a team. And um, if we do that, and if we build that culture, then we're going to meet our goals. That's great. We're going to uh, we're going to be looking at the rankings and seeing some more red white and blues in usas if uh if everything goes well this was a um this was great i appreciate this thanks martin. thanks a lot john and that was martin blackman the usta player development head uh just for some context the uh the last bit he was talking about private sector versus public sector that's pertains to the usta and the role of, of public and private coaches at home that's been a source sometimes of, of soreness with players but obviously a lot of encouraging signs in the juniors, we'll see which of these kids on the boys and girls side will both make the transition to the pros. But I think Martin was pretty clear about what his mandate was, and it seems as though success or failure is going to be fairly easy to assess just looking at the rankings in a few years. So, Will, I know there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of call for this podcast. I know there were a lot of people uh, concerned and interesting in hearing Martin. 
I suspect we can check in with him again as his tenure progresses. But meanwhile, that's this week's SI Tennis Podcast. Thanks for joining us. We'll do it again in seven days. <laughs>